Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Justin. Hey, man. Uh, so we have uh, a few weeks ago, we had an amazing guest because uh, you recommended uh, one of your geeky things that we talked <laughs> about was the documentary, The China Hustle. Yeah, I happened to I happened to come across it after after Luck and Coffee crashed. Um, I, I started looking into things a little bit, and I happened to come across that movie. I watched it. I, I just reached out to Dan David uh, from Wolfpack Research, just from after watching the movie to see if he wanted to come on the show, and he agreed. We had him on the show. We got to discuss that, and uh, and I think there might be an opportunity to bring somebody else on from that film. No way. Yeah. I would love that. <laughs> can, tell me more. Can you, can you tell me more after our theme song? I can tell you more after the theme song, but first, I'm Justin Womack. And I'm Andre Sturgeon, and we are the Marketing Geeks. Marketing Geeks. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Justin, who do you have for us? That's right. Today we have the... Other most, uh, I would say, most prolific featured person in the movie, The China Hustle. So we had we had Dan David on the show back in May. And now we're going to have Carson Block. And Carson Block is the founder and chief investment officer of Muddy Waters Capital LLC, which is a manager of private funds focused on activist investing. Since 2010, research published by Muddy Waters and its predecessor firm has identified seven emerging markets-based companies that were subsequently delisted by various regulators. Mr. Block was named to the Bloomberg Business Week 50 Most Influential in Global Finance list in 2011. And prior to Muddy Waters, he started the first self-storage company in China, uh, mainland China, and he co-authored the book Doing Business in China for Dummies. He's also practiced law with Jones Day in Shanghai, People's Republic of China, and he received a Juris Doctorate from the Chicago-Kent College of Law in 2005 and a BS in Business in 1998 from a large University in California. That's very uh, cryptic. <laughs> uh, please welcome to the show, Carson Block. Carson, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you so much for being on the show. And, and just real quick, if, if to our seven listeners, if you haven't seen The China Hustle, I, I'm serious. Stop what you're doing. Stop the podcast. Go watch The China Hustle on Netflix and then come back here. 
because everything is so relevant uh, and there's so much happening. And for, and for clarity, it's available on Netflix internationally. In the U.S., it's uh, it's on Hulu for free right now. If you have a Hulu subscription, uh, go check it out. Or you find it on Prime. You can find it on all these different networks. But yes, Carson, um, to kick it off, I mean, can you elaborate a little bit on that bio that we kind of uh, opened with here and just tell us a little bit more? I mean, maybe uh, also define what an activist short seller is, because that's kind of uh, the term that I hear to describe you a lot. Sure. So, um, all right, where where to start? Okay, activist short seller. Um, traditionally, a short seller is just somebody who's betting that a stock is going to go down. Um, usually, that's you know, short sellers have been they would bet that a, a company that's a melting ice cube, it, the stock's going to go down. So um, they're just in a secular business decline. So you short it, and if you're right, the stock will trade lower. We are, and that's a niche, but we are a niche of a niche. And that is, we focus on companies that are, oftentimes we focus on companies that are committing fraud or are misrepresenting their financials or other material information to investors. So the category of legal fraud. So we've, um, we've actually, uh, I've got to update that bio. We got our eighth uh, delisting uh, of an EM company. So when we deal with in that land, like that's where they're just making everything up or, you know, the financials, but yeah, like fraud is honestly for schmucks. I mean, you, you, know, you can run a company and really present financial statements that have little bearing uh, or a little tie to reality, but do it within the rules and not really risk prison time. Although, or, or, or your presidency prison time <laughs> either. So let's call a spade a spade. You know, it's, everything's consequence free. So in the, in the movie, you were really the first person to uncover what was happening in China. And and just to give a little bit of background here. So, so you, um, so Dan, the movie kind of features a lot of Dan David from Wolfpack research. And he talks about how a lot of the hedge fund managers in 2008 had kind of lost a lot of their money and they were looking for ways to make it back. Um, The China, China companies were a booming economic opportunity that pretty much every company that people were investing in in China were getting huge returns, like 100%, 200%. It sounded like astronomical returns. At some point, you were in China running that self-storage facility, and your, I think in the movie you just said your father had wanted to invest in a company called Orient Paper, and, and, and you because you were spending time in China, decided to do some uh, due diligence and go check it out and see if it was a good investment. And it's kind of describe that experience, what you found and, and also, uh, you know, correct me if I said anything incorrect there. No, that's, that's all correct. Um, I'll fill in a few details and hopefully this isn't too detailed. Um, but um, the first time I lived in China was 98. I had just graduated from the large university in California who's, I'm just absolutely horrified by what they've done in subsequent years, which is why I don't mm. say the name publicly. Um, but anyway, I went over to China looking to open up um, an, an equity re- research business. After I was there for six months or so, realized it was way too early, came back to the States, did banking at a big bank for nine months, hated it, started working with my father um, in equity research, microcap stocks. And I did that for a few years. And we were just getting lied to all the time by managements of these companies. And so this was 99 through 2002. And at the same time, the biggest companies in the world were blowing up as frauds like Enron, WorldCom, 
et cetera. So I just looked at this and I said, you know, I, I like, I want to be an investor, but this, this sucks. Like everybody just lies to you. So went to law school thinking I would learn how to better protect myself as an investor. Didn't want to practice law, but I actually really ended up enjoying law school. So took my first gig out of law school in China, in Shanghai for a large U.S. firm. Did that for a little bit. And then I, I left and I was opening up the first self-storage company in mainland China. And I thought, oh, we're going to be huge and raise money and go public, um, which that didn't come to pass. And um, I mean, I, you know, like I, I got my ass kicked um, <laughs> day in and day out. But doing that really enabled me to see the matrix in China. And I started learning, I mean, how easily perceptions could be manipulated. So, for example, our first self-storage facility, the only one, um, we ended up leasing it space in this redevelopment. It was one of these creative zone redevelopments. And so our building was at the back of the complex. Now, we were leasing space from a landlord who was leasing space from the owner of the building. That kind of situation in China where you have a second landlord is common, and it's a bad situation to be in. We knew that, but the owner of the complex was a large state-owned enterprise, and the our landlord who was leasing it from that state-owned enterprise was also this big state-owned enterprise, and this was a pillar project of the district government in Shanghai where it was. And so I went to the opening ceremony before we signed the lease, and you know, the chairman of each of these SOEs got on stage and, you know, you know, big dreams for the future and, and what have you. And, uh, in the district government, uh, the party, you know, the party secretary got on stage. It was all good. Well, it turned out it was all bullshit. It was a total, it was a total sham. This guy. So the, the le- our landlord was not a state owned enterprise. He basically just bribed the board of the state owned enterprise to let him use the moniker and they bribed these guys to enter into the lease. And I think the whole thing was they were all going to steal money together and whatever. But the guy running our, the, our landlord was stealing too much money. And so we learned that the, district, that the, that the owner was going to put him down, basically, and shut down the whole facility. And, you know, when you go through this and you're, and you're like, well, everybody here is willing to lie. And it's actually not that hard. Like, all you do is, you know, you, you change a business card. You change a sign. Then it's a, so it was experiences like that that enabled me to, as I said, see the matrix. So at the end of 2009, my father got really interested in these Chinese companies that had listed in the U.S., um, the microcap ones, and he asked me to take a look at one of them. The first one was Orient Paper. Um, I was back in L.A. Uh, for Thanksgiving, so during that time, we had lunch with the, the CFO of Orient Paper, and <laughs> is an odd setup because this guy was sitting in America. You know, I guess he traveled occasionally to China. You know, I had been I had been out of the markets for nine years at this point, and or eight or nine years. And um, I just remember asking this guy basic questions. They just the company had just raised money, and they were going to build a new factory. So, um, how many square meters will the new factory be? Mm, uh, I don't know. Um, what what do you think? But what's the what what's the construction cost per square meter you expect? Mm, I don't know. How much will the machinery cost? Mm, you know, just he couldn't answer any of these questions. And he's a CFO. He's a CFO. <laughs> wow. And so it turns out that this was a common template for these China frauds listed in the U.S., where they would have a you know a CFO. I mean, it's like a, you know it's a fake CFO, right? But just mm-hmm. somebody to tell the story 
to American investors. So they would have that person based in America. And um, I mean, at least this guy was originally from Taiwan, so he spoke the language, but that's in China, but that's about it. Um, so anyway, I said to him, um, I was like, look, man, you know, when we go over when, in due due diligence um, early next year, if there's anything Chairman Leo wouldn't want us, wouldn't want somebody to find out, just make up an excuse for why this visit didn't happen, all right? Because we're going to look at you guys more closely than anybody ever has. I'm, I'm just telling you that. So it's like, oh, I'm sure Chairman Leo wouldn't, you know. Anyway, but they, you know, they had their chance to back out. They did not back out. So I brought a friend of mine up whose background was in manufacturing, um, an American entrepreneur. We, we flew up um, to see the company in early, in early January of 2010. And we're going through the filings for the first time as we're sitting in the airport in Shanghai. Uh, there was a snow delay up in Beijing, so we had a lot of time. We're going through the filings for the first time, and we're laughing out loud repeatedly <laughs> at the claims, you know, of like, you know, as to what they paid for the real estate. I mean, they were massively inflating what they paid for their real estate. And I mean, just everything was a red flag. So look, our assumption going in the next day was that the chairman is stealing tons of money out of this company. We thought it'd be a real business. We were not expecting a fake business. But when we got there, it was far worse than we ever imagined. It was a fake business. And, you know, as we walked into the first factory building, um, the guy I brought with me, Sean, he leaned over and he whispered, he's like, holy shit, we got him. And I mean, <laughs> supposed to be this major paper producer, but there's water everywhere in the workshop on the tables where the workers are folding the paper. The machinery was likely, uh, you know, it was clearly once belonged to a state-owned enterprise that had blown away. <laughs> Um, now, now in the movie, real, real quick, in the movie, they show footage of this uh, of this factory. Is that actually footage that you took, or is that footage that is that even real footage of the building? Because it looks like a dump when you, they show that in the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, is that it, yeah? That's our that's our footage. The drone overflight. Somebody else did that, but yeah, they show these in the movie. I think it's Roddy Boyd talking about you know heaps of garbage. That yeah. those are the inputs. Um, so it's old. They made um, what this company supposedly made was corrugating medium. So it's that brown paper that when you look at a box, you know, the layers of box, the stuff that yep. goes up and down like that. That's what they supposedly made. And the inputs for that are old corrugated cardboard. And so they had these heaps of trash, you know, uh, just old boxes that have been rained on and pissed on and everything <laughs> out front. And so, and this is on the balance sheet, just the, you know, the raw materials is on the balance sheet at $5 million. Huh. US. So the guy I'm with, and it's a paper company too. Yeah. It's a paper company like that's soaking wet and with piss and water. I, I actually <laughs> invested in $5 million worth of cardboard once. And, uh, but I had, I had to take, take uh, like uh, five tons and keep it in my house. That was part of cardboard futures. Yeah. exactly it's a wave of the future by the way um so so sean you know he's wearing like his this really nice zinnia overcoat but he climbs one of these heaps of trash looks around for a minute comes down and he says if this is worth five million dollars the world is a much richer place than i ever knew wow 
I mean, and it's just like everything with this company was fake. And, um, and afterwards, uh, you know, Sean was also recalling after the visit, he said, because the company had claimed like last year, its production was up like 40% or something huge like that. And Sean asked him, he's like, well, how did you, uh, how did you increase production? Did you add a, a line? <laughs> and, you know, as Sean recalled, the chairman was like, no, um, process improvements. And so when Sean's recounting this afterwards, he's like, you were in that workshop. You looked around. Did you see anything new, like a new box <laughs> or a new bucket? Like, how the, how the fuck do you grow production 40%, you know, like off of nothing? So anyway, it, um, yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a fake company. It was a potential. And, and later on, you had, uh, so I, I think I saw this later on, you had learned about like these SAIC statements. So China was keeping their own financial records versus what they were reporting to the United States. And I think what I'd seen from one of your talks was that um, it was actually more like, 2.5 million in revenue and they were reporting like hundred million in revenue. Were they even making 2.5? That seems high from what I saw in that video. <laughs> so, so I, all right. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. So I, because I'd been a lawyer and my practice had focused on M and A and foreign direct investment, like uh, com- U S companies looking to set up joint ventures. I knew, I mean, as part of our due diligence process as lawyers, we would always review these files. They're called, SAIC files for State Administration of Industry and Commerce. And SAIC files are treasure trove of information. So, for example, on Orient Paper, there was an asset verification report that showed like, the, that the, the number of assets, the number of production lines the company had was far fewer than what they were claiming, six, and it was worth a fraction of where they were carrying it on the balance sheet. But also, is very interesting is companies report to SAIC each year their, their financials. And so we got the, the income statement from the SAIC files, and it showed that rather than the 103 million US in revenue the company had just reported in its SEC filings for 2009, that the real revenue was, I think, two and a half million dollars. And the, what was really interesting about that is. For FDI and M&A law in China, SAIC files are just a, you know, a foundational aspect of that practice of doing due diligence. But what clearly was true was that you know, a lot of the same Western law firms or U.S. law firms would have securities attorneys in Hong Kong or in mainland China that were working on, these cap- on bringing these companies public in the U.S., but it's like they never heard of SAIC files in the securities law side of the house. I mean, so back then I was thinking like, I, you know, I feel like there was a really high level decision made by practice heads at the various U.S. firms that work on this stuff uh, to just ignore, consciously ignore SAIC files when they were doing this work. That, that's now, incredible. I mean, the, one of the reasons that's incredible is because it, it, it is one of the hallmarks of Americans in general is that they love ideas of getting rich really quick, right? And, and, and they're also very gullible because there's a lot of get rich quick ideas out there uh, that people fall into, a lot of scams. And, and so when you have basically a, a cabal, right, of people who are like, hey, this is a way that we can get a lot of money out of Americans. Let's let them think that they're going to 
get rich. They send basically like a beard, you know, somebody to just show up and play the CEO and tell them that it's going to be okay. And, and most knowing that most, most Americans will not either check any of this or even get to China. The chances of that happening are very, very slim. So, so there's this, there's this kind of knowledge gap that people fall into because they want the money rather than doing their due diligence. And it's amazing to me that you were one of the first people to do this. Well, I mean, what was, you know, what was just really, I mean, the whole situation was incredible. So, I mean, with Orient paper, right. I thought this was a one-off because I, the only domino that had not fallen for me um, in terms of trust in the investment ecosystem or process, the only domino that hadn't fallen for me, for me early in my career was that of the auditors. So I thought that auditors were there performing an anti-fraud uh, function, which I mean, literally, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not joking. They're not, that's not what they're actually, that's not what they're there for. They're there to ensure that the correct accounting standards are being applied and that the correct accounting standards are being applied correctly. So it's not, you know, I'm, it, they're not here to question everything that management's telling them or to question the accuracy and veracity of the documents that they're given. So I thought Orient Paper was a one-off. We published this report. It went viral, stocks down 55% the day after we published. I'm still living in China. That was not the reaction I expected. I'm scared shitless. (laughs) Um, But all of these people began reaching out to me. And um, these were smart money hedge funds. You know, and they said, hey, this is great. You're the first person to prove that one of these is a fraud. The fraud is endemic. It's systemic. Look at this name. Look at that name. So I just started cracking open 10Ks, and it was the same reaction. I'm just laughing constantly at the silliness uh, of, the, of the claims made in these filings. So, you know, it was at that, at that point, it was, it was off to the races. But, yeah, I... I really don't have any explanation for how all of the securities work was done by West, by U.S. law firms that also had FDI M&A practices. Um, probably like a Gordon Greco philosophy was involved is what I'm going to assume. Yeah, my guess <laughs> is people were getting very rich and, uh, you know, nobody's doing anything about but it. So I got a, I got a quick question. Do you, do you speak Mandarin? I mean, you lived in China. Are you fluent in Mandarin or do you know a little bit? Um, how, how fluent are you? I mean, so I've been back here for 10 years, but when I, when I left China, my Mandarin was pretty good. I mean, I, I studied it for uh, three years in college and, um, well, four academic years. I had to impress yeah. one. And are you able to go back to China now or do you have to wear a disguise? I mean, will they even let you in the country now? Oh, <laughs> well, they'll let them in the country, but whether or not they let them out again is a whole other. I don't. I don't think your disguise will work because I think their facial recognition technology is probably super advanced. By but my guess is that you'd be making Nikes next to uh, a Uyghur Muslim uh, in a few days. So, uh, so, so let me ask you this. I, I, I just want to know about the time when when this broke, and all of a sudden, like you were like, "Oh, damn! I I really stepped in it." Uh, you're living in China what, what happened? Did you, was there any point where you were like uh, afraid or somebody hassled you? What, and and how did you get back to America after that? So the irony is, um, uh, you know, I worked on Orient paper as a side project for, for months. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have any clear way of making money on it. 
you know, I was, I had my self storage business. I was just struggling to keep that afloat. So I thought maybe if we put this report out there, maybe we'll get engaged by some of these investment banks to do due diligence. Ha ha. <laughs> Not knowing that, you know, that would destroy their whole entire China business. Um, so anyway, when, when I released it, um, it was, it was just, it was about three in the morning, right? I'm tired because I'm in China. So it's, I'm so tired, put it out, see the stock take down a little bit. Uh, did we do that? I don't know. Go to bed. Next day, my father arrives. He's, he's come to visit me in China, but we're going to go see some companies together. And I pick them up and then, uh, you know, we get in by, you know, 4 p.m. I think, uh, or sorry, by 9 p.m. The market's open and Orient Paper opens and it crashes. And so my father's there. I'm getting all this inbound email, you know, fuck you, you fucking asshole, <laughs> dead. And, you know, it's, it's like pretty intense. Uh, the next day, my father and I go up to see some other company uh, in Wuxi, I think, which is a little bit outside of Shanghai. So we get there and I've already been, you know, getting, I mean, getting all these emails, you know, some people are saying like, yeah, you, this is systemic, check out these other companies. And we arrive at this other factory and immediately I notice silver spray paint on the ground outlines. And I'm like, huh. And later when we would tour the workshop, it's like, oh, shiny new machinery. Like (laughs) I see the outlines of that in your driveway. So there was that. So then, you know, we're, you know, we're told how many workers, you know, work there. And I'm like, all right, you know, um, where do they live? Like, uh, dormitories. Okay. Show us the dorms. No. (laughs) Then we get walked off the property, you know, to the, to these dorms. And you see all these women who are waitresses at some restaurant and they're in uniforms walking back and forth. That got bust in five minutes earlier. <laughs> yeah. And so, well, well, I mean, they clearly weren't factory workers, right? They like worked at yeah. some restaurant. So it's just like, okay, all right, cool. So, okay, time, time to go back and meet with the chairman and, and the CFO. So we go upstairs. The CFO had just arrived like by plane from Beijing. Um, and as we walk to the top floor of their offices, if all through this glass window, they've got a big room with a bunch of computers, but these computers were legend computers. Like there had not been legend brand computers made for years <laughs> in China. It was Lenovo and they were the big CRT monitors in which oh. even 2010 was a rarity. Everything. And I'm like, there's been nobody working here for years. And so anyway, you know, my, I haven't had a chance to really discuss this with my father during the meeting, but as soon as it ends, as soon as we get dropped off uh, or we get in our, our car, I'm like, man, my father's like, Oh, this is kind of interesting. And I'm like, Bill, I always called my father by his first name. I'm like, Bill, things are total fucking fraud too. (laughs) Well, how do you know? Are you sure? And I would start going through it and, just so, so did you did you secure a short position in Orient Paper before publishing that report, or did you just publish the report to see what happens, and then and then later on started uh, started doing that formula of shorting and posting these kind of reports on the frauds that you found? Oh yeah, the it was something in between because um, I mean at that point I got you know I I'd done well for myself financially before I moved to China. 
And mm-hmm. by the time 2010 came around, I was, I had no more money of my own. I'm borrowing from my father every month just to like pay rent on the apartment. So, you know, I scrounged together $2,000 and, you know, and, and um, Sean had $2,000 and we bought $4,000 worth of put options on Orient Paper. Now, I wanted it, I wanted ONP to think like, this guy probably has some real money, probably made some real money in the trade because I wanted them to not sue me because I really didn't have a good you know, like way of dealing with that. Even though the truth was on my side, it's just, I didn't really have a good way of paying for lawyers. So um, it was a bit of a bluff on my part. But weren't you a lawyer though? You were a lawyer. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I was a lawyer, but I mean, like I represented myself right after I graduated law school, I was suing my landlord in Chicago because he wouldn't give back the uh, deposit. And um you know, like I succeeded in having my case dismissed because I didn't fill out the wrong fucking form in the court. <laughs> I mean, there's like, it's like, I took Civ Pro, but it doesn't, they don't teach you like this form is for that. And once the judge, you know, orders you have, you know, issues an order, you actually have to enter it yourself. So I was not competent to represent myself in anything. Um, it's one of the realities of law school. So, <laughs> but it's good. They make you pay for three years. Um, so, so anyway, uh, that was, yeah, so that was what it was like when we released the report. My father and I flew the next day to see another company in Wuhan, um, and that's when Orient Paper issued its response saying that my father and I had tried to shake the company down for money and that they said no and that this was revenge. And so now they're smearing my father and they're lying more. And what had initially been, you know, fear, like some fear on my part, of, oh my God, you know, we're living here, or my, my wife and I are still living here in China. Um, and these guys are, you know, I mean, all these people are yelling and screaming. Jim Cramer's calling me a fraud on TV. <laughs> I'm mean, not Jim Cramer. No, not Jim, Jim. Cramer yeah. called you a fraud. <laughs> yeah, no, that, Jim, I Jim's would, like, I would put that on my resume, dude. That's uh, that should be on your website on the homepage. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, <laughs> I'll never forget Jim Cramer uh, yelling at the top of his lungs. Do not de-invest in Bear Stearns. The stock market is going to be fine. And uh, yeah. in 2006, that, that like. You're not supposed to remember that, Andros. You're not oh, supposed to remember I remember everything. That. I'm like a fucking elephant. <laughs> Don Stewart did a great riff on, on Kramer for that. But, you know, I mean, but I've, I've gone from feeling the weight of the world and fear and, you know, regret. Like, should I have done this openly? Once they said my father and I tried to shake them down, then it was like it's on. All right, motherfuckers, yeah. like <laughs> we're going at it now. Like fuck you, you crossed the line, and it just turned to rage. And and you know, and that's and that's honestly what fueled a lot of the you know maybe the first year, two years of what I did was um, I came out of China with a lot of scars. Like I, I mean, I, I really came to hate these guys who you know, think the rules don't apply to them. And that was building upon scars from the first time around my career. So a lot of what I was doing the first couple of years, I'd say was really just controlled rage. Well, you know what? This stuff beats scared any day of the week. So good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Definitely. Now, what does it say about like the state of like the human race too? I mean, you're talking about a systemic problem not just in china but i mean in general business um we've talked about on the show like john ronson's work in the psychopath test and how 
uh, people that are considered psychopaths tend to rise to like positions of like CEO or power, lots of different types of positions. And, and there's got to be people in the U.S. government who know this shit's going on, right? I mean, there has to be. Oh, I'm sure. But I mean, what what do you I mean? What's your what's your take, real quick here though, um, on this? Like, do you is that what you're seeing? I mean, is that are these people like actually lacking in empathy, and just is that why they're so greedy and able to to kind of pull off these scams? Or like, I mean, what's your, what's your take on the on the human condition of these people? Okay, well, I I, I think it it varies. You definitely have the psychopaths, especially when you talk about U.S. companies. You, you definitely have CEOs who are psychopaths. Um, yeah, I'm not. You know, it's a small number, but there are people where we're like, okay, that person's a psychopath. Among American CEOs, though, and just the management culture now is so broken that, as I'm, I'm fond of saying, every CEO of a publicly traded company. It feels like it's his God-given right to be able to dump at least $50 million worth of stock. And they're the ones who aren't necessarily crossing legal lines and outright lying, but the culture is so broken and just so corroded that, you know, when we pick on them, they're probably thinking, and they're right to think this, like, shit, man, why me? I'm not doing anything that you know, all these other guys aren't doing like, why are you singling me out? I mean, my answer is, you know, like shorting you and I wish I could go and short everybody, but you know, just your number came up, I guess, but that's one aspect. Um, and I would say what compounds that is, and I, you know, I felt this was the case before the financial crisis, but it really was the case coming out of the financial crisis is there's just a tremendous amount of, un, of insecurity that people feel around the world. And I think so many people are effectively you know, playing just to stay one more day in their jobs and not thinking really long term because nobody, like we see the bottom fall out of people's lives and careers routinely. And so I think that embedded within so many people, and I'd say this is definitely the case among CEOs, it's the case among auditors, lawyers, all these, this, the professional class is I think a tremendous insecurity that really breeds this short-termist behavior. And I don't know how we get off that treadmill because, you know, the more short-termist we collectively act, the more things do blow up and really, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I don't know what slows down the treadmill to the point that a majority of, you know, people in these spaces can feel like, you know, I'm okay if I, can't report blowout earnings this quarter or next quarter. I'm building a business or I'm rebuilding a business. I have a long-term vision, you know, and I think people will buy into that, but we're, we're so far from that right yeah. now. And I, I, I personally, I think it, it, a lot of it has to do with uh, a, a few things, but one of them being that people who uh, there's, there seems to be some sort of feeling in America that that is being pushed up against. I mean, this is what everything is about right now is that there, there is a classist system. And I think that when people get really wealthy and have a lot of power, the thought of like, well, you know, I just, it's all about me. I just got to make sure I get mine. And if it screws over someone who's not me or not my tribe, then, oh, well, they couldn't afford what I can afford and I earned it. Right. So I, I think that there's, you know, when, when you look at the American dream, I believe that it came true and they elected him 
into, he's running, he's in the White House right now. That is the, the American dream personified at this point. So the, 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 the question I have for you is like, can you like contact Elizabeth Warren, who's probably going to be treasury secretary and see if she can appoint you to a position that takes care of this shit? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jesus Christ, imagine the freak out on Wall Street if they chose a short seller to have a senior role at the S. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, now, speaking speaking of that real quick, because as a short seller, um, I mean, I, I was looking at a few articles on you. You've been described as widely feared, and uh, even the mention of your company's name can send your uh, send a company's shares south in a hurry. Um, but you you take a lot of heat as a short seller. I mean, I, I think you're probably being called a lot of names. You're being, uh, I'm sure people are digging into your past, looking at ways to attack you personally. So how do you, how do you deal with that? And one of the things, um, one of your team members actually forwarded me an article from a few years ago where uh, you were shorting, I, I believe, a certain casino stock. I don't remember the name of the stock, but um, somebody posed as a Wall Street Journal reporter, I believe it was Wall Street Journal, and they, I mean, they weren't, and they, they were trying to, it's, it looked like they were trying to get intel on what you knew uh, or what your company knew about their company so that, uh, so that they could get ahead of whatever you were going to do to short them and, and try to combat it. So I mean, how, how do you deal with all that? Um, well, it's complicated, I guess. Um, okay. So number one, um, I mean, we start fights. Like, I mean, I, it's not like these companies, you know, all of a sudden unfairly pick on, you know, pick on us, pick on me. I mean, you, you got to know what you're up against, you know, and, and accept it. Number one, um, you know, I, there are lines that I do not cross. We use investigators, but we use them to go and stake out factories, you know, mm -hmm. to see what the traffic is. I mean, we don't dig into management's personal lives. I even if I feel like the manager, you know, the CEO is a psychopath or, you know, just is doing horrible things. Like to me, there's a line there. Now those guys, I think we try to cross it um, with when uh, we were, when, after we uh, published on a company called SinoForest, uh, investigation firm had been engaged by either SinoForest or SinoForest's management uh, to dig into my background. And so I, I'm, I assume a number of companies, a number of guys over the years have tried to do it. You know, um, I don't know. I mean, like maybe my porn tastes are like too middle of the fair. <laughs> You're that squeaky Pretty clean. <laughs> they cave it, but you know, whatever. Like they, you know, we haven't heard it. So hopefully I'm, you know, reasonably decent guy. Um, now what you referred to was this incident. Um, the company was actually called Casino. They, uh, it's a French company. Um, they compete with car for and with hypermarkets and yeah, they're, uh, um, they're controlled by, they're controlling shareholders, a guy named Jean-Charles Nauri and Nauri is very establishment in France and very well networked. And we went through the ringer in France, uh, in terms of an investigation by the regulator. And ultimately after four years, the regulator issued a press release this past December saying that they weren't going to take any action against us. And that was actually a pretty big deal because there were people at the regulator in senior roles. We, you know, we think like really wanted to just crush us for fucking with their boy. And one of the things that happened during this whole process was um, 
started getting pinged by somebody who, whose name was William Horobin uh, from the Wall Street Journal. But he was always emailing from a Gmail address. <laughs> Red flag number one. <laughs> yeah. I could see that happening once or twice, but repeatedly. And kept asking questions, you know, over email about, um, you know, about uh, the, the AMF investigation and what our plans for casino were. So pretty early on, it seemed, you know, something seemed really off. Then anyway... Um, and, and so what we ended up doing was we ended up checking with, so William Horobin is a real Wall Street Journal reporter. At the time, at least, he was based in Paris. So we ended up having somebody reach out to him and ask, hey, have you been trying to contact Muddy Waters and, you know, Carson Block? And he's like, nah, I don't, I don't cover casino. That's somebody else. No, I have no interest in that. So, okay. <laughs> we knew this was, you know, bullshit. What to do with it? And you know, I, I want to pat myself on the back here because I, I thought, I said, listen, we could make some hay of it right now, but let's just hang back. Let's see if these guys, you know, whoever they are, can fuck themselves up somehow. And that's exactly what happened. So eventually the email came through to our PR uh, rep saying from, you know, fake Bill Horobin saying, uh, I'm going to be in uh, New York next week. Uh, could I sit down with you? And actually, sorry, in New York this week. This was like Monday that this came through. My PR guy, you know, sent this to me and he said, what should I say? And I'm like, dude, why don't you offer him a meeting with me? Tell him that Carson happens to be in town and can sit down with you Thursday. I was like, I doubt he'll take the meeting. And if he agrees to it, I doubt he'll show up. But hey. So went back to him. The guy responded, yes, that'd be great. I'm like, oh man, this is on. <laughs> you know, so I got I to gotta get out to New York quickly. And I, I got a security team together because, yeah, like, you know, who knows what's going to go down here. And, you know, so I've got, guy, I've got guys to provide security for me, but I also have guys at the entrances. So I named the hotel, the Pierre Hotel. Uh, or I, and so I've got guys at the entrances who are ready to follow this dude whenever he leaves. And, um, anyway, I'm sitting there and, um, you know, I've got somebody over my shoulder. We also have a reporter from the financial times at an adjacent table. And, uh, cause I, I sent that to them just beforehand, like thinking, Hey, maybe you guys want to cover this. Cause they've done a lot of coverage of, you know, Carson block versus now and, you know, et cetera. So this guy comes in and he sits down and he's got, you know, like his English is good, but you know, he's got a very distinct French accent. It's like, Oh, hello. I am a uh, Bill Horobin. Uh, uh, I am from the UK, but uh, I've been living in France so long. They say I have lost my English accent. Like, oh. Very convincing. Very convincing. That's, yeah. that's so strange that that shit could happen. Huh? So anyway, I said, all right, my, my PR guy is not here yet, you know, because my PR guy wasn't going to go anywhere near this meeting. Like, so, you know, maybe let's just hang out for a few minutes and, you know, until he gets here. So, <laughs> I mean, the, this is so amateur hour, but like the guy doesn't want to kiss. He just wants to go straight in. Right. So he's like, oh, and in that case, uh, do you mind if I ask you, uh, what, what is the status of uh, the AMF investigation? And I'm like, all right, hold on. Yeah, you know what? Hang on, Bill. I, I just have to, I just got an email. I have to make a trade. <laughs> I pull my phone out. I hold it up and I just start saying, okay, I know you're not the real Bill Horobin, 
<laughs> and so I'm recording this guy. And, you know, his response is, okay, so? And, uh, <laughs> well. Yeah, so what? Tell me who you are. Just like, uh, why you, I am a journalist. I'm, you know, well, if you're a journalist, why don't you give me your real name? Well, you, uh, you know, you will not uh, take the meeting. I'm like, did Casino, did Casino send you here? And he's like, <laughs> and then I look over at the reporter from the FT. I was expecting him to come over to the table and ask some questions. He had been told not to do that, but I look over at him and fake Bill Horbin glances there. He sees that I know this guy looks behind my shoulder. He's like, okay, that guy might, might see the guy on the balcony. And he's like, he realizes he's got to get the fuck out. And he <laughs> and booked. And the one professional aspect of his conduct that day was that he knew where the entrance was in case he had to get the fuck out. And he got out so quickly that, you know, like my guys couldn't follow him. Um, they just couldn't communicate from the balcony to the door quickly enough. So anyway, I had the video and I'm flying back to San Francisco. And my initial thoughts are, man, I'm going to blow this dude up, you know, like all over social media. But then I started to calm down. I'm like, listen, he's probably just some functionary working for an investigation firm that blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I had, I had uploaded the video and it was sent off to some, some people in France uh, who are in the investigation field. And when I landed, um, the person I was, I had sent it to said, he's like, all right, listen, um, when I, you know, when these guys got back to me in, in France, they said, um, you know, like, I'm not, not comfortable telling, giving you this guy's name. I was like, what? Like, Carson, he's actually a serious guy. Like, you're shitting me. Like, this guy's got a deep and he doesn't have a French accent. Um, MI6. Um, so no, he, uh, so yeah, it turns out that he has a really deep background in French Intel. Um, he's one of France's leading counterterrorism experts. Uh, he'd wow. written several books on terrorism. I mean, at the time he had over 20,000 Twitter followers and this guy was so arrogant. He thought that with that public profile that he could pretend to be a real wall street journal reporter emailing us from Gmail take a fucking face-to-face -face meeting with me and that I was going to like spill all the secrets of, you know, muddy waters and casino to him. I mean, just like he, on paper, he's not a stupid guy, but you know, like the conduct, the actions. Yeah. So anyway, his name is, you know, cause whatever, I've already outed him, but Jean-Charles Brissard. So anyway, every now and then I troll Brissard cause I'll see him <laughs> write something about like, Oh, these terrorists are so awful. And, you know, I'm like, we'll be sure to get him on the show to get his rebuttal on this too. <laughs> is, he, is he a Le Pen supporter? Do you know? Um, well, actually, no, I'm pretty sure these guys, these guys were, you know, right wing, you know, now we, I think was a supporter of, um, Oh Christ, Sarkozy. Uh -huh. um, so I think he's in that crowd. But I mean, I, they didn't look. They, I don't think they wanted Le Pen. I, I don't think he's in that crowd. Like Le Pen is so, you know, is so anti-establishment. So you know, even even Macron. Um, well, actually, I believe I'm trying to remember who. Uh, so Macron ran against uh, Francois Fillon, and I think Fillon and Nauri used the same uh, PR person. Oh, so I think it's, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the firm. But anyway, that was the overlap. So I was looking at that election, and I was thinking. 
Jesus Christ, like I do not want this guy feeling the win. Like I felt like that would be bad for me as far as the AMF goes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, it, it, what's interesting here to me is that you basically you're you're kind of like a financial Batman. Like you know you uh, you're yeah, super that's good vigilante. Yeah, <laughs> your your superpower is just basically you you look for evil and uh, strike it down with uh, th- this particular skill set that you have. I mean, it's 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 really interesting because it it's almost like you also with the skills that you have could become very very rich, like a lot of the psychopaths that get rich using these same methodologies. So what was it in you that, that decided to take one path versus the other when they were both presented to you? Well, I don't think you're, I don't think you're struggling too much financially though. Are you? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just kidding. By most people's standards in the world, I'm, I'm pretty wealthy. I mean, I, I right. But you, you could have been like part of the Uber rich. So what, what, what was the line there for you? Uh, you know, I mean, look, I, I from, from a young age, you, well, I believed, okay, let me really back up here, you know, and I, okay. I grew up in, um, in a town in New Jersey that was, you know, very wealthy. Everybody's father worked on Wall Street. Um, and, you know, they all seemed to have like the postcard perfect families and houses and memberships. That was not my family. My parents got divorced when I was six. Um, I was around alcoholism as a kid. I had a lot of like traumatic shit happen to me as a result of that. And, um, you know, and that ended up making me kind of a target for derision as I grew up, you know, Um, I never, I never fit in really. And I guess what I, you know, what I enjoyed doing was I enjoyed pointing out the absurdity and hypocrisy of some of the people around me who like, came from that perfect, you know, seemingly perfect background and just, you know, pointing out, like fucking with them, frankly, like just getting in their faces and fucking with them when I could. And um, especially when I got to you know, to my sophomore, junior years in, in high school and I heard all these kids, you know, some of them say like, Jesus, I really need a scholarship to X, Y, Z. And I'm it's like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Your house is like 6,000 square feet. And, you know, you got like, four cars and, you know, and and like moments of honesty, you know, like Carson, you don't like financially we're, we're kind of fucked and seeing that hypocrisy, but also just always having a real distaste for it. I, Mm -hmm. I think that's part of it, you know, and then also I just, I just always took seriously this idea that, you know, it takes you a lifetime to build a reputation, a few minutes to burn it. And then the final layer was going to China and, you know, looking around and seeing like, I don't, you know, feeling like I don't like this place. I don't like living in this place because it's just exhausting because everybody, you know, not everybody, but the people who are least willing to follow the rules are the ones who succeed the most. And it just sucks. And so I I came back from China with a real respect for the rule of law that we have in this country. And I guess, you know, almost religious about that. So, um, I, so I think it was really a combination of mainly those factors that can put me where I am today. So yes, I can, I know the blueprint for a stock promotion or a fraud or whatever, but you know, a, I don't care about money that much to do it, but B, 
I mean, you should see me trying to, you know, sell my hedge fund. Like I'm, I'm the worst fucking salesperson. Because <laughs> I'm just totally honest, you know? And so somebody, you know, so somebody old potential investor will ask me, you know, well, okay, what, what are, you know, what are the risks here, you know, beyond, you know, losing money? I mean, what about getting, you know, can I, can I be, you know, can I get sued as one of your LPs? And, you know, I think like the salesman answer is like, never, it'll never happen. You know, let me tell, you know, and, but I mean, my answer is like, I think it's remote, but look, man, I can't, I mean, I can never guarantee that it's impossible. And I mean, and the reality is, look, if it went really badly, you know, I mean, we're talking a multi-billion dollar, you know, uh, verdict and, you know, I'm, I'm bankrupt and, you know, you're <laughs> fucking, you know, endowments wiped out. I mean, <laughs> Like Sounds whole, great. That is a Sign great sales up. pitch. I love, I love that you sales know, can pitch. We, can we no, offer you some marketing advice after this interview? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got, a, I got a question here. So, um, because that you consider yourself not a great salesperson, what was it? The China Hustle movie then that really like catapulted you into the spotlight? Was that the big difference maker? Because, in my opinion, if somebody is not great at sales, the workaround is to build these stellar, prolific reputation. And uh, and the China Hustle Muscle uh, China Channel Hustle movie would have done that for you, I'm sure. But did that make a huge shift in your business, or were you already like at a certain level and it didn't make a ton, or how, how did that impact you? Well, the uh, so the I mean, what really you know the the big the big boost you know when I I left obscurity at least in finance was um, in 2011 when we shorted Sinoforce. Uh, I mean that was a that was a company that was really widely held. Um, I mean, some huge name, uh, the, the largest shareholder was John Paulson, and he's the guy whose funds made $40 billion um, shorting subprime um, when the financial crisis collapsed or, or when bad. the crisis occurred. So that gave me a profile. And that's why I went from, you know, in 2010, I'm a guy running a self-storage facility in Shanghai you know, that's not even making money to 2011 being one of the 50 most influential in global finance with, you know, uh, Christine Lagarde and, uh, you know, and Alan Greenspan. Um, you know, it was because of Sinoforce. Now the movie, The China Hustle, um, it's actually funny. I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy that Dan ended up being the, the, the main protagonist. Um, mm-hmm. Dan and I are, are good friends. Um, but, so Dan, Dan was involved with it from inception. Um, he and another guy who's featured in the movie, some John Carnes, I think it was their idea and they brought it to somebody John Carnes had worked with in the past. And that's how the movie took off. Now, Dan tells me that I was intended to be the main protagonist and I was the first person they reached out to interview. But, um, you know, I remember having conversation early on with the, with the producer and she's, you know, she's saying, okay, well, we're going to come out to interview you. Um, how about uh, after that, we, you know, we get some shots with you and your kids. No, or your kid. No. What do you like to do? How about we, you know, get some footage of you doing what you like to do? <laughs> no. At home, you know, with your wife? No. I mean, like I was the most cagey, closed yeah. off person. And I think I no would. No B-roll. Yeah. With that. No B-roll footage. They want all that B-roll footage. So while you're interviewing, they play footage of you with your kids and all that. Right. We, we did some really lame B-roll of me riding in the back of the SUV they'd rented, like listening to Kanye, you know, I've got my earbuds and I'm just like, you know, like that was the B-roll footage they could capture. So it obviously didn't make it in the movie. And so 
Yeah, I mean, look, I just, you know, I just thought I'm going to sit on camera. So it didn't, the the irony is, you know, I, at least this is what Dan said, that, you know, it, I could have been featured more prominently, but I didn't, or I, it's just not the sort of thing I was comfortable with. And, you know, and with Dan, like Dan, I, I, I do feel like Dan is a much more, you know, he's a much warmer, approachable person than I am. So, and he ended up running for Congress after, yeah. after that movie too. Yeah, so, we talked about um, that, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, uh, like, I, I'm, it's a shame he didn't win, but I, I think he lost to a good opponent. Like, I'm okay with, with his, his opponent. But uh, anyway, yeah, so that was, that was the China Hustle. It, uh, you know, it, it's a great movie. I'm glad they made it. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, you know, it, it didn't really, it wasn't a career boost. So I'd like, to, I'd like to take this into a few, like, more current events um, right now, because, I know I was following your Twitter feed for a while here, and um, you have talked a little bit about Elon Musk and Tesla. And, you know, he's one of our favorite subjects to talk about. So <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to just kind of t- t- uh, talk about that. One of the things that I saw that you had said is that you, you're, you're very bearish, I'll use the term bearish, on Tesla, but you would never short them because Elon Musk has a habit of like pulling rabbits out of his hat and and, and he also has a habit of it's what's getting government bailouts. <laughs> um, but uh, talk, talk a little bit about like, and, and also know, Elon Musk. And, uh, do you yeah. think that he is a uh, super villain or he's actually masterminding uh, being the uh, legendary hero of the planet? Mm. <laughs> or something in between. Um, oh, no, not, not nothing in between. Yeah. One or the other. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> I mean, un- unfortunately, yeah, there's, you know, there's nuance there, but um I would guess that Elon would probably score pretty high on one of those psychopathy uh, uh, evaluation uh, tests. Um, you know, I, he's not, in my view, he's not doing any of this to save the planet. I mean, it's, you know, it's self-aggrandizement. But, I mean, look, if you can, you know, if you can make the world a better place while doing well for yourself, like, yeah, there's no problem. There's no shame in that. I just... I hate the phony bullshit of, you know, oh, I'm doing this for humanity when it's like, come on, bro, you got a G6. Like, let's let's put it out there. Like, why are you really doing this? Um, so so what what uh, what's your feeling on on like because because I think Elon Musk represents a certain type of uh, billionaire class. Uh, so what what does this say in the much grander sense? Like, what are you sensing from all of this, including Elon Musk? Well, I, I mean, look, I, you know, I don't think billionaire is a pejorative. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, and I, I almost, I, I wrote an op-ed, um, and what was it back in uh, last summer? And I, I was, I asked, yeah, I was, I was going to try to publish it somewhere, but I asked Dan, David, and a few others for advice on it. And they, uh, they told me like, now you're going to just, you know, infuriate everybody. But the op-ed was, a criticism of Elizabeth Warren's demagoguery in going after billionaires, you know, and I said, and basically my point was, look, if you drop billionaire, you could put immigrant in there. And I, you know, and that's what Trump, you know, it's like almost the same words and stuff. But so I don't, I don't, you know, per se have a view that, you know, billionaires are bad people. Now, I think the issue is there are some people who become billionaires, not because they're, you know, not because they're doing things that are, are positive for everybody around them as well as themselves. I mean, look, I think Mike Bloomberg did it the right way. But, you know, there are people who are basically just sucking up wealth from others and people who cheat. And, you know, I mean, people who are 
predatory capitalists. I think that among U.S. billionaires, that's probably a minority. But um, you know, so anyway, like I don't, I don't begrudge Elon for that. I just begrudge Elon for the phony, you know, the the phony shit about like, oh no, this is never about the money, and you know, it's always about you know, or it's just about you know saving humanity from itself. Um, and yeah, and I, I find I don't know. I kind of find Elon like more and more grotesque as time goes on. Um, so what are your what's your take on on Neuralink, the brain chip company, where he's saying that you have a, a surgery to implant a brain chip in your uh, in your head and it can cure depression and a few other claims that have come out recently? Uh, will you be second in line behind me to get the brain chip on day one, or <laughs> it'll come with your COVID vaccine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and 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 my my feeling on Elon is that the the one thing that he could do to actually prove that he's not a supervillain is uh, get the uh, Starlink uh, internet system online and give free internet to the planet, unfiltered free internet uh, to everybody on Earth, and then I'll go. Okay, I'm I'm behind you. Uh, but until then, if he's just going to make money off of it, eh, you know, because that that action actually overshadows whatever wrong, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I think that that actually my theory is that if we were able to give unfiltered free Internet to every single person on Earth, that would allow uh, people who don't have opportunities to now have an opportunity to learn and start controlling their own finances and uh, become educated and form networks. Uh, so I, I think that that global free internet that's unfiltered by any government would actually help uh, humanity. But uh, I mean, look, so, it, might, it might it might chill some people out if they could get access to good porn. I mean, I'll put it that. Way. <laughs> it's so it, true. Uh, right? It all really comes down to that, and I uh, I fully agree with uh, that. I got I got a question. Back in May, I remember reading that the Senate passed some sort of resolution to limit the the way that Chinese companies were being listed on the stock market. So, you know, some of these, like the style in the, that you described in the China, some of you was these reverse mergers. Um, what, what was that legislation back in May? And did that actually have any impact on what's happening? How prevalent do you see the, the fraud still on the market? Like how, how common is that at the, like today in August of 2020? Sure. So I think when we're talking about companies uh, listed in the U.S. from China, I think the vast, vast, vast majority of them are committing fraud to some extent. Now, mm -hmm. and you have to really been ensconced in China, I think, to, to understand why I say this or to, to feel this, because I, I can't like offer you proof of this. But my, you know, everything about, you know, from my time in China tells me that the following is the case. So for Chinese and people who do business there, if a company is inventing 20 to 30% of its revenue, that's real. Like, that's fine. Everybody's expected to do that, basically. Like, why wouldn't you do that? 30 to 50, I think, is a gray area in terms of whether we think that that's problematic or not. More than 50 is like, yeah, yeah, they're lying. Like, that's, that's a problem. But basically, people, you know, bullshitting 20 to 30% of what they're saying you know, in terms of a company, and I think that probably you know, more or less translates into anything they tell you. If it's twenty to thirty percent completely false, or twenty to thirty percent is false, like that's real. Like, that's how much lying, fraud, deception, bullshit is in the environment in in China. Now, it's maybe not that different from other emerging markets, except for the fact that we allocate so much money to China. Like we're not throwing nearly that much 
money at, you know, countries in Africa or, I mean, even India hasn't received, there aren't many companies from India listed on U.S. markets. Um, so that, that's really, you know, that's really the issue there. Now, in terms of what this legislation was, um, one of the things that came out of uh, Enron's collapse is the creation of, an, uh, uh, of a regulator of auditors in the U.S., the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, PCAOB. PCAOB is supposed to inspect auditors of U.S. listed companies. So if you want to audit a U.S. listed company, you have to register with PCAOB, and then they're entitled to inspect you. I think they do it every two to three years. Now, China has never allowed for the inspection of PRC-based auditors. And also China created this legal framework that says that only local affiliates of these, you know, of the big four or whatever, only locally registered audit firms are permitted to uh, actually undertake audit work. So simultaneously, China has said, these are the people who will do the audit work and PCAOB, you may not inspect them. So this was kind of an issue on, that blew up then in 2011 um, on the back of the short reports that guys like ourselves had dropped and exposed all this fraud. So it, it made it, this issue of auditor inspections actually made it into what was called the Strategic Economic Dialogue, the SED that was carried out um, at cabinet levels between the U.S. and China. Um, and there was even a case brought where before the SEC's own court where um, the big four, uh, their China affiliates, were basically about to be deregistered for six months. The practice license is suspended for six months which could have led to delisting of a lot of Chinese companies. Um, but it seems that the Obama administration stepped in and said, you know what, we don't want to press that button. We've got a lot of other things on the agenda here with China. Let's just back burner that, hit the auditors with a $500,000 fine each, like maybe the audit fee from one client for a year. Um, and life went on. At the same time, China had cleaned up some of these problem companies by using its banks to finance buyouts of some of the obvious frauds. China understood U.S. investors very well, and they knew that we had short-term memories. So they cleaned up the problem in 2012. 2014, Alibaba is going to go public. Basically, you know, the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, they pull out the knee pads and, you know, they're trying to get the listing. and. And it worked. And people lined up around the block, basically, metaphorically anyway, to subscribe to the Alibaba IPO. And then that opened door for more of these Chinese China companies to list. And these were generally better frauds, meaning there was more reality there. Um, they were better at committing fraud. But the government in China also had locked down a lot of that information we used to get in the SAIC files. So you couldn't just go and pull an SAIC file and prove the company's a fraud. And yeah, and like, you know, U.S. investors just wanted a growth story. So a lot of money is continuing to flow into them. And when Luckin blew up, you know, so there were a couple of voices who were alone in the wilderness on this. Senator Rubio, to his credit, but has long been fixated, or I shouldn't say fixated, but he's long been focused on this issue. Marco Rubio? So, really? Marco Rubio. You know, look, it, you know, there are, I, I'm not, I'm not a fan of, you know, of the guy in office, but 
the one thing that he did and some other Republicans have done is they moved the needle in terms of how we see China. And, you know, I, I think, look, the, you know, Obama is, you know, the most decent person to hold that office in, you know, in, in a number of years since at least Jimmy Carter. But he, his China policy was riddled with, with, pro, with errors here. And so anyway, you know, so Rubio was, Rubio was pushing this. And after Luckin blew up, it got some real traction in the White House finally, because, you know, once Trump, you know, once COVID hit the U.S., I mean, you know, the whole Trump reelection strategy is China, 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 China. So I think it's a combination of, you know, Rubio and a few other people uh, probably within the administration pushing it, Luckin and COVID. And so now you got the Senate to unanimously pass the bill. Unfortunately, in the Democratic controlled House, it hasn't made it out of committee to a vote, but it's the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. And it would provide uh, it would it would provide that auditors would be deregistered if they're they have not been inspected uh, for two years. Uh, so I think by January of 22 uh, by the PCAOB. Now, the reality here is that the SEC already has the authority to delist these companies because the auditors have not been inspected. And so that law, there's existing law that has been violated. So this is symbolic, um, but it's important symbolism. It's better than nothing. Um, but, you know, look, I think at the end of the day, China will cave on this issue. And there are two, there are two reasons why. Number one, inspecting the auditors is not going to stop. It's only going to be a tiny speed bump in the road for defrauding U.S. investors uh, through, through these companies from China. Okay, it's and, and the Chinese government knows this, and that's why they're basically going to get us to exhaust all of our political will to get this one victory. And then we're going to, you know, everybody's going to say, all right, <laughs> we can claim victory, fuck it, go home. And like I said, that will not stop anything. That's number one. Number two, these officials from the, 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 from the Chinese government, you know, whether it's the highest levels or, you know, on down to senior local and provincial officials, they all have shares in these U.S. listed Chinese companies secretly through proxies. They, got, they have a lot of offshore wealth in these companies. There's no fucking way they would let them get delisted, especially over something as minor as allowing inspections. But at the end of the day, that's the leverage that the U.S. has. I don't know that anybody in policy making circles in the U.S. knows that they have this leverage or we have this leverage. But also, like I said, China's plan, I think, is to give us this ultimately if we push hard enough. Now, uh, the, the thing that uh, something you just said sticks out to me, and that's that uh, the Democrats have actually kept a bill in committee, which is kind of interesting because you always hear about Mitch McConnell holding up like the uh, Election Security Acts and all these other things. Uh, you don't hear about bills being held up by the Democrats as much. Why do you think they are doing that? You know, I, look, I, I, don't, I don't know much about politics. I, I suppose it's because they think it'd be handing a win to Trump and bringing you know, China, his China message to the forefront. I guess the bigger question that I've been asking for years is why haven't the Democrats ever picked up the banner on China? I mean, you've had Bernie Sanders and you've had Elizabeth Warren, you know, but aside from that, why isn't it a mainstream position of the Democratic Party that we have some real problems in the relationship with China and we need to push back. So I think that it's because for reasons that I cannot fathom, 
that the Democrats have completely ceded the China issue to the Republicans. I think it's because they've ceded it that Pelosi won't let it come up for a vote and give the administration, uh, you know, what could be perceived as a win for the administration. My, my guess, knowing Pelosi, is that she's probably thinking we're going to deal with this, but we can wait, you know, now a few months and uh, even a, a couple of years on it because uh, Pelosi knows that if uh, if if they pick up the mantle, there's enough on that particular subject. There's enough business that the U.S. still does with uh, China, and we're in the middle of a financial dip, an unbelievable dip right now. I think that that, that would rock the boat because then they could really, you know, the real problem is, is and in, in, tell me if you feel this way, that if, if the global economy switches from like the petrodollar to the euro uh, and China is holding all this debt, it's, it's going to be pretty bad, right? <laughs> I mean, well, it's, it's funny because everybody thought they knew something about economics and markets has been just absolutely perplexed by the past 11 years. Um, so yes, you'd think it'd be bad, but apparently uh, the Federal Reserve can just buy unlimited amounts of US government debt. So I guess if China wanted to stop buying or was gonna dump, the Fed would just soak it up. I mean, none of this seems healthy. None of this seems like it, it, it works or adheres to the rules of, of economics. But I don't think the euro would replace the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency because the eurozone has problems. I mean, you know, internally, it's it's kind of uh, people thought it was going to fall apart in 2011, um, and there are still real strains within the eurozone. Oh, yeah. um, banks in Europe are are shit show. So, I you know, I, so the euro I don't think replaces the U.S. dollar as reserve currency. The RMB is not going to do it either. Um, I think that's all just kind of, you know. So one other, uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about, since we're talking about like, these current events, what's happening in, in Congress um, and with the president, is the, the TikTok and we, uh, WeChat ban that took place uh, pretty recently. So uh, there was an executive order issued that gave a period, I believe, 90 days for TikTok, TikTok and WeChat to uh, not only cease all operations in the United States, but also to sell all of their assets. Um, and I, I'm sure this will be challenged in court. I doubt it'll actually come to fruition before the election. Uh, but what, what is, I mean, is this, do you see this? Like if you, if even politics aside, let's say, do you, do you see this as a wise move? Do you think that TikTok is a China data mining? Um, I mean, is that, is it a data mining operation? Is that like what its main purpose is or um, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I think that TikTok is a real problem. I mean, um, you know, there, I mean, one, you know, I guess that the first time that I, I really thought about this was the realization that um, uh, Grindr, which is like the, the gay Tinder, was owned by some obscure company in an obscure part of China in Yunnan province. Hmm. And you know, and I, I had no idea until I until I read, um, you know, I think it was some administration officials or, you know, some politicians carping about that publicly. And I thought, holy shit, like this is brilliant on the part of China. And it absolutely is to get blackmail material um, or material that they could use to compromise people, you know, I don't know, whether in the U.S. or other parts of the world. So I think TikTok 
you know, but that was developed by a U.S. company, I believe, Grindr, and it was sold to the Chinese company. TikTok apparently was developed by China. So, I mean, I guess it's pretty impressive if that's the case that a Chinese company was able to develop something that, you know, became a social media mainstay overnight. But yeah, I look, I have little doubt that there that the intention of China, the government is to, you know, regardless of what the founders of TikTok ever intended, but that they can use this information or try to use it. Now, I mean, maybe the you know reality of the world is that China hacks everything everywhere. So should you really feel that much more secure, you know, with your data, you know, giving it to any of these other social media apps or any of the other stuff on your right. phone? Are you giving it to the Chinese government or the U.S. government? Take your pick. Yeah, everybody's data raping your phone. I mean, this is the bottom line. Everybody's data raping your phone and China data rapes everybody. So maybe <laughs> substantively doesn't do anything. But um, uh, I just wanted to say, though, real quick, that TikTok acquired a company called Musical.ly. So the whole the whole social media network is based on the uh, Musically, which I think was an American company, and then TikTok or whoever uh, ByteDance, whatever acquired Musically and then integrated it with what is now TikTok. So I think it is based on a lot of American technology. Okay, all right. Well, that that's a relief because I remember you know going back to when I lived in China, I used to say, oh, they're trying to encourage innovation, but how can you do that with all this internet censorship? So I started to feel like a, you know, like I was totally wrong on that, <laughs> that they had invented some global social media sensation. Well, they refined so it. I, they, they, they definitely added the yeah. AI. So, I mean, if you scroll through TikTok, it's, it's a rabbit hole. And if you just start liking a few things, it starts to feed you the information that will light up your serotonin uh, the most. But, uh, but so this is the, this is the, the thing. And I was, I was just thinking about this the other day, like China took over Hong Kong. Hong Kong was like almost like its own country and China just basically took it over. And uh, you know, they're, they're getting pretty, uh, there's a lot of bravado being shown around Taiwan right now. Uh, in fact, uh, China taking Taiwan is on my uh, 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 apocalypse bingo card for 2020. Um, but uh, but that's a serious deal. And then you know this information about the uh, the concentration camps and how they're uh, the persecution that's going on. I mean, what what's the outcome of all this? What do you foresee? What's your prediction? Uh, I mean, like really long term, who knows? Um, short to medium term they get away with all of it. Um, I mean, the thing that, the thing that sucks is, I mean, so first of all, China with Hong Kong, um, they're, they're taking advantage of the COVID crisis because everybody is so distracted. All the, you know, all these other countries were so distracted just trying to deal with this, that they knew that Hong Kong had become more of a thorn in its ass than it provides in benefits to the CCP. So they figured, all right, let's make our move now. Um, which is, which is, by the way, I, I, I am generally not, a mainstream conspiracy person. Uh, however, if if China did want to uh, create something that would distract the, the the entire world for a bit while they did this uh, and ended the, the the riots that were definitely starting to get more mainstream uh, on the news, uh, I, I I would say this was this this was a perfect thing for them. Uh, that said, I also believe that it's it's probably just a natural thing, but they definitely took advantage of a, a situation. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they took advantage of it. I mean, others are doing the same thing too. You know, I mean, it's uh, arguably the Trump administration has done that with respect to the post office. Um, 
but it's, um, you know, look in, in terms of, do they get away with it? I guess the thing that, the thing that really distresses me and depresses me about what's happened with China is that China has been so much smarter about this than the Soviet Union ever was. I mean, China has co-opted our, our elite. I mean, co-opted the elite globally, um, influencers. I mean, look at the whole thing with the NBA. Now, in Hollywood. Look at you know, every film that comes out. Every film that comes out has to be China censored yeah. before it's released. Right, exactly. And here's the thing, you know, there were there were some people who were involved with the China hustle who, by the time it was released, were nowhere near it because they'd taken in investment from China. And yeah. you know, that all comes with very visible, obvious strings. And the fact that, and this is where I go with, you know, when back earlier in the show when we were talking about how everybody's thinking so short-termist. I mean, like, you know, we all have to live in this world. And, you know, many of us have kids or grandkids. I mean, fuck, like, shouldn't we show some restraint? And I mean, you know, and, and LeBron, look, I have a lot of respect for LeBron James as a social activist in the U.S. But, you know, frankly, you know, on the whole China thing, I mean, when he just sold the fuck out, I mean, yeah, it's so yeah. depressing. You know, it was just He's got a contract with Nike, and you know, Nike is largely in China, yeah. and that's that's the problem. Everybody, everybody has their price, but eventually, people people will be glad to take the payment. And and this is the thing that really drives me crazy because if you look at, uh, you know, I, I would love to to create some bumper stickers that say "Support Communism, Shop at Walmart." <laughs> you know, uh, and put that all over red states. Let the, I mean, but but people really don't think about this stuff. And uh, you're right. So so I'm sure you've meditated a lot on this particular subject. Let's leave everyone with something a little hopeful. What if you were given the power to fix all of this? What would be the thing that you would do? What would you recommend Elizabeth Warren do? Well. <laughs> I mean, my problem with Elizabeth Warren is the demagoguery. I honestly feel like she's, you know, she talks about the high road, but she took the low road. <laughs> well, let's say, let's set Elizabeth Warren aside and just go like, you have a magic wand. What would you do? Right. You became yeah. Elizabeth Warren. You're now in her body and you can make decisions. What would you do? So we're talking about China alone or? No, just or, in general, like a lot of these problems that you highlighted, particularly with China and like, like just, you know, the stock market and everything. Just if you can give us kind of a bullet point of things that need to happen for all of this to start getting fixed. To start writing the economy, I guess. <laughs> okay. Do you always end on this kind of question? Generally, yes. Uh, we're, just, we're, just, we're just kind of curious. Look, it's either this or you got to tell us uh, what's going to happen with AI in, uh, in 50 years. So either <laughs> one of those, man. All right, look, I'm going to say something that's going to sound trite and of the moment, but then I'm going to explain that I think there's a real difference. Um, okay. okay, I go back to, I think a lot of short-termism is driven by insecurity. There needs to be more of, of a net. I mean, people need to feel like there is, you know, there is fallback position other than, you know, you're, you know, you and your family are totally wiped out. I think Obama was, and I didn't quite get it at that point when he focused on healthcare, number one, and said, you know, this is really about the economy. But I think, you know, when you look at the, the rise in healthcare costs, I think that's one reason that wages have not kept up. It's because employers have to keep paying that. And that's one symptom of, at least in the U.S., you know, what, or that's one element of anxiety, like getting sick, wipe you out. So, you know, why don't you go out there and, you know, do as much, grab as much money as you can today, elbow everybody else out of the way, punch them in the face. I think there's a whole lot of that in our society that's, that's feeding these behaviors. And, 
Um, you know, we know there's no middle class or there's very little middle class left. So, you know, you're not worried about going from upper middle, you know, just to middle. You're worried about going all the way down. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I the, the thing that really distresses me with missing California, um, you know, the teachers union came out the other week um, with respect to schools that are not opening. You know, it's county by county. And if your county's on the watch list, schools don't open. But schools can individually apply for waivers. And so the teachers union came out and said, we're against granting waivers because that's going to favor good school or it's going to favor wealthy schools and private schools. And, you know, what what I think is that like inequality is a big problem and this insecurity is a big problem. But, man, when we're at the point where we're saying, you know what, we're going to solve inequality by saying all of you are fucked and now we're going to fuck all of you, too. You know, so your kids, these kids are fucked. All kids should be fucked. Like we've lost our way. And that is the solution. So I don't have a solution for, you know, like for, you know, you know, for like Joe Biden or for Elizabeth Warren. But, you know, I but I do believe like I do believe we have to try to ratchet down the anxiety we all feel. Um, but we have to do it, with, you know, with the mentality that's, you know, it's not like, oh, we're just going to, you know, this crab mentality of grabbing everybody down and pulling them to the lowest common denominator. Because guess what? You know, people who don't want to be pulled down have mobility and will leave and will not buy into the system. So, well, I think that instant gratification thing, like short term uh, mindset, I mean, it's, it's just embedded in our culture in a lot of ways. And it's not just in the investing side, it's just in culture in general. So that's going to be a tough one, uh, a tough one to crack, but on, on, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've, I put a little thought into this and my, my feeling is because what you seem to be dancing around is, is universal basic income. Right. Where where if you make under a certain amount of money, you get, you know, enough to live on. Uh, and they, they say that 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 disincentivizes people to work. But I don't believe that at all because nobody really wants to sit. At, I mean, some people will. But but for the most part, people want to feel productive. So I, I think I think there needs to be that. I think there needs to be uh, free health care in the United States. I think that the, the United States needs to start paying people to go to medical school and taking immigrant doctors and giving them citizenship if they practice here uh, over a certain amount of uh, years. I, I think that 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 we collectively definitely need to, to put a safety net in place. Uh, that and we need to give free internet to everybody in the country. And uh, we need to create something like the WAP during the recovery of the depression, where we start building infrastructure and hiring Americans to do it. It's, it's like those things alone, I think, would, would start to, to change the reality of, of the country. Uh, do, you, do you see anything economically wrong with, with those particular ideas? Well, I mean, I think, look, I, I think UBI could be done in a way not to disincentivize work. Like it could be, you know, um, you know, it, it could be that you'll get even more if you're earning at least, you know, this much. So you could, Sliding scale. You could, right. You could build in the carrots. Can it be, I mean, the one thing that really bothers me about it, you know, well, not the one thing that bothers me, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm of the belief that debt is a problem for this country. And I mean, I, I was kicking and screaming as loud as I could, not that anybody listened or cared, but back when we passed, back when we enacted the tax cut in 2001, and again, in 2003, when we were already fighting two wars. But the reality is we've got, um, I, I think the latest numbers officially about 20, well, the, the, federal, the federal and state debt now exceeds GDP. Those debt figures by a decent margin. 
those debt figures exclude social security. Like we, I don't know where the money, you know, like where some of the money, you know, comes from is, is part of the problem. But of course, the longer we perpetuate the system, the harder it becomes to write it. Now the one, one principle, I mean, you know, and I've, I've thought a lot about this living in California, I'm okay paying 50% total taxes, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a high, I'm a, I'm a high earner. I'm okay paying half, you know, all in. Right now in California, last year I paid 52. If this new tax legislation passes, I'd probably pay 54. Like, and I'd feel morally like that's bullshit because, you know, especially in my business, it's very litigious. If we really mess something up and I lose a lawsuit, like my family, lose, we lose our house, we have nothing, we start over. It's not like the government ever says, oh, we've well, paid all these taxes over the years, here's your money back. And I think a lot of people who are business owners you know, take similar risks. So I don't think it's right all in for people to have to pay more than 50% in taxes. Um, so I think if we can, I think if we can manage things within that framework, look, the estate tax, that should exist. The threshold, you know, which you start paying, it should be a lot lower. I mean, that whole thing of not, you know, of exempting estates from, you know, exempting sizable estates from the, the estate tax, I think is bullshit. I mean, it's like, if you're, if you're lying on your deathbed and the last thought you have is, oh, I really wish I could have passed more money along, it's, <laughs> fuck you. That's not a life, <laughs> not a life to live. I don't have a problem with that. I think there is some low hanging fruit, you know, capital gains tax rate should go up, but I, you know, but I do, you know, I, I do really worry about the fiscal situation. Um, you know, I, I don't know. We've, we've dug a real hole for ourselves and, uh, and, and it looks by all, you know, from everything I can tell, we're going to continue to dig it. So, well, let's, uh, let's kind of uh, finish up here. Cause I know uh, you're on a, a schedule and, and I want to, I mean, I know that wasn't exactly what Andres wanted with the, the super high energy, exciting, positive ending, <laughs> but I think it's okay because it's, it's, it's realistic and honest. And, and so, again, we've been speaking with Carson Block, the uh, chief investment officer of Muddy Waters Capital. And, and so um, what, usually what we do to actually officially close the show, though, Carson, is to ask you, what, what are you geeky about right now? And this can be anything uh, like we like to know, like, are, are you watching Netflix? Are you watching Hulu? Like, what, what are you watching? What are you geeky about? What's your passion? What are your hobbies? Those kind of things. Um, well, I just started watching um, The Watchmen. That's um, oh, so uh, good. Andros watched it. I haven't seen that yet. So good. Did you read the comic? Did you read the graphic novel? No, no, I had no idea about the comic in the uh, in the backdrop until after a few episodes. I was like, wait a second. I and I looked it up on Wikipedia, so I got that there was a novel. And um, but yeah, it's just incredible because it's so 2020. You know, like everybody's <laughs> wearing masks, and uh, <laughs> you know, but the, the cops are black. You know, and it's just but there's this real dynamic. I mean, it's it was. It was so intended for 2020 that uh, it's it's really eerie. Yeah, in fact, the, the opening scene, uh, you know, it, it shifted the needle a little bit because it takes place during the Tulsa race riot and uh, where where this really affluent part of uh, uh, Oklahoma where black people own businesses and it was called the Black Wall Street. Uh, one day, a bunch of Klansmen uh, went in there and just killed everybody, essentially. Uh, it, it was a slaughter. And, uh, and as I was watching this, Watchmen takes place in an alternate reality. And I'm thinking, oh, that's an interesting alternate reality narrative. Really I had hard. no idea. And I'm pretty progressive. I know a lot of, about a lot of this type of stuff, but I had no idea about that. It was incredible. Ditto. No, I, I had no idea, you know, until, until the show uh, created publicity around it. Like I had no idea that happened either. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, history that we don't get um, because history is written by the winners, I guess. But um, Bill Barr said that yeah. re recently, which fucking terrified me. <laughs> What's that? Bill Barr. Bill Barr, uh, the attorney general, said that uh, recently in an interview. Well, he, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, what else is he going to tell himself when he goes to bed, right? I mean, uh, well, uh, my question <laughs> is not that. What is he going to tell himself when he goes to jail? And that's what I'm, you know. Mm. Bam. You know, I, I, yeah, I mean, part of me hopes that these people get prosecuted and see prisons, but, um, you know, there's also something to be said for let's think a few elections or, you know, more than another election down the line. And if we do that, does this make shit better or worse? I mean, the, the one thing, you know, this is way far afield, but I, I was, you know, I'm a fan of President Obama in, in many respects, but I think the one thing that you can really say, you know, if, if you're asking, well, was he an effective president or not? Was he good or not? Donald J. Trump. Yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think you have to look at Trump here and say there were certain things that, I mean, you know, where Obama, Obama wasn't effective. I mean, you can't blame Obama for Trump, but, you know, the thing is, so long as we perpetuate this cycle, like we're, you know, Israelis and Palestinians just trying to, you know, kill each other all the time, we, we can't get past it. So do we go after these grifters for their crimes in office? I mean, I want to, but then maybe the pragmatic, you know, patriotic thing is to say, fuck it, we need a new paradigm here and we need to stop, you know, pursuing this cycle of political, I mean, it's not vengeance, it's justice, but it would be perceived on the other side as vengeance. Of course. So maybe the outcome is the right outcome when, for the long term. When wearing a fucking mask becomes politicized, you know, you're in trouble. It's like, yeah. and, that, and, and I think, you know, to Obama's, in Obama's defense, I agree with you. I mean, he, he uh, ratcheted up the, the, de the deportation policy uh, incredibly uh, more than any other president. Uh, however, that said, uh, I, I also feel that he was in a position being the first black president that he was under such a microscope uh, that if he made any radical moves, they would immediately go for, he's an angry black man. And I think that, uh, that it didn't matter because they painted him that way anyway. And, and I think that, that Trump was the, the, the pendulum swinging the other way. Uh, but I also feel that this is, this is the civil war still playing out. It never ended. You know, people think it Agreed. did, but it hasn't. Hmm. Four years ago, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought that was accurate, but yeah, I, 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 I agree with you in that conclusion. I feel the same way. <laughs> Four years ago, I didn't feel that way, but right now, yeah, I'm starting to. All right, Carson, thank you so much for being on the show. Wait, real quick, uh, Justin, what are you, okay, right, what are you right. geeky about? Oh, what am I geeky about? Good, yeah. good question. Man, I haven't really uh, gotten too geeky about too much stuff. I I've been watching a lot of Carson Block interviews to prep for this to catch yeah. up on some of his stuff, and I rewatched the China Hustle. Um, but that's that's really it right now. I've been d busy doing work. But what about you, Andres? Uh, I just finished Umbrella Academy season two on Netflix, and uh, that show is I'm very impressed with it. I hope they don't pull an OA on it and uh, pull the plug. But the show is very fun and one of the best like superhero type movies. Uh, shows that I've seen in a while. So uh, highly recommend it, Carson, after you're done with uh, watching. <laughs> All right. Thanks. So uh, Carson, thank you so much for being on the show, man. This was quite an honor. Right, thank you. Enjoyed it. Carson Block, everybody. That was an amazing, amazing interview. Yeah. Uh, man, you scored that. You scored that interview with him. Yeah. I mean, we, we got Dan David on the show.
and they share the same um, representation. So it was, uh, it was, we were able to get uh, Carson Block because of how good, how great our interview was with Dan David. So nice. If you haven't listened to that one, go back and check out the Dan David interview. We posted it in May 2020. Um, uh, yeah, so it shouldn't be too far back from this one, but go, yeah, go find that one because that also gets some more backdrop on this whole China hustle story and the Chinese stock uh, fraud that's been going on. So there's a lot of background that you might want to listen to if you have not yet heard that episode. That's right. Uh, and uh, I don't know what episode that uh, that was. I'm trying to. It, it was it was one it of up, them. It was an episode. It was an episode that was that happened a few months ago. The title has Dan David and the China Hustle in the name. So if you if you I'm sure you could find it if you use those terms. <laughs> nice. Uh, so uh, anyway, we are uh, doing some reshuffling uh, of just like our website and stuff like that. So uh, we're uh, we had a, we had a small issue with the site, and so um, with the hosting company, with the hosting company, yeah, uh, and uh, it, it was a matter of uh, we just pissed off the wrong people. And they just, I know, right? Yep. Yeah, something. I don't know. No, but we but, we get it. We yeah. get what Carson Block is going through because we're constantly pissing people off, <laughs> <laughs> including uh, our new listeners, which uh, which is why you know they eventually become old listeners. Uh, and that's why we only have seven at any given moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's exactly true. So, man, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we got some really good guests. And uh, please leave a comment. Let us know how much you hate us. That's fine. <laughs> uh, and uh, and then maybe leave we'll- a review. Leave a review on on Apple Podcasts, especially iTunes Apple Podcasts. Thanks. We love those reviews. <laughs> that's right. We should do we should do uh, some live uh, some some mean tweets one of these days. We'll do it. We'll do it in a future news episode. We will read the reviews on the air. All right. Well, until then, we uh, haven't really had any. We haven't really had any negative ones for a while. We've been mostly positive. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that is strange. Yeah. But uh, let's not break that. Let's not give anyone any ideas, please. <laughs> uh, and then, then please connect with us on our LinkedIn page because uh, we have. Uh, I'm going to try and be a little more active on it. I've been saying that, but uh, fuck, man, uh, life is life is crazy. It's like you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a hustle. It's 2020, man. It's a weird year. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are the Marketing Geeks. Stay classy. Marketing Geeks, come on, bring your friends. We'll learn marketing from distant lands. Bundles through Jen and Justin Womack. The fun will never end. It's Marketing Geeks. Marketing Geeks.